Most of you at Christmas time have seen the movie Home Alone, Home Alone 2. In fact, it's a classic for a lot of people. Do you remember the scene when Joe Pecci went into this house and uh, he took a kaleidoscope and he turned it? And as he turned it, you could see the different shapes and sizes. Well, most of us understand what a kaleidoscope is. When you look into it and you turn it, it gives you a combination of colors and different shapes and different sizes. Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning is the kaleidoscope of God's grace. You see, God's grace is multifaceted. It comes in many different shapes, many different sizes, many different colors. When we often think of grace, we think of God's saving grace, but grace goes way beyond that. So turn, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 this morning, we want to look at verses 11 through 15 as we talk about the kaleidoscope of God's grace. Now remember, when the Apostle Paul got out of prison in his first Roman imprisonment, he traveled with Titus to the island of Crete. And he went there to plant churches, and then he left the island, and he basically writes a letter back to Titus. And what he tells Titus in chapter 1 is, I want you to do mop-up work. I want you to set things in order in the churches on the island of Crete. Now, in chapter 1, what Paul did was he addressed the leadership of these churches, and he basically tells the leaders in chapter 1, I want you to be holy. Then when you get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's not going to address the leadership, but rather he's going to address the congregation. And John looked at five categories that the apostle Paul called to be holy. He looked at the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and then he looked at slaves. And basically, he tells the congregation, I want you to be holy as well. But then beginning in verse 11, which is where we're starting this morning, is Paul uses a word for. And that for, normally we'd skip over, but it's an important word because what it does is it shows us that what he's about to say in verses 11 through 15 really links itself to verses 1 through 10. In 1, and 10, 1 through 10, he says, I want you to be holy, and now he's going to give the reason why the leadership of chapter 1 needs to be holy, and he's going to give the reason why the congregation needs to be holy. He says, for, and then he says, here's the reason, it's grace. Grace is the foundation by which you and I are motivated to live holy lives. He says, for the grace of God in verse 11. And so what we want to look at in verses 11 through 15 is this kaleidoscope of God's grace, because what Paul is going to do is he's going to present to us color combinations of God's grace. Let's look at them this morning. First of all, I would have you note the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in salvation. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. In fact, I love the word grace. I named my daughter Ashley Grace Nimmer using that term. We all love grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. In other words, we deserve hell. We deserve condemnation, but God extends grace to us. He gives us something we don't deserve. To understand the word grace, you have to look at it in counterdistinction to mercy. Mercy is God withholding what I do deserve, grace is giving me what I don't deserve. Like if my daughter is out, let's say, when she was a teenager and her curfew's at midnight, 
And at one o'clock, she's not home, and I'm blowing up her phone. She's not picking up the phone. Finally, she arrives at two o'clock. Anybody here ever have that unpleasant experience before? Well, let's say she comes home. What does she deserve? She deserves judgment. She deserves chastisement. She deserves to be punished because she violated her curfew. But instead of punishing her, I show mercy to her. I withhold what she deserves. That's mercy. But then I tell her, you know what? I deserve to punish you, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to show you mercy. But here's what else I'm going to do for you. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get up and we're going to get breakfast at Denny's at nine o'clock. And then I'm going to take you out and buy you $500 worth of clothes. That's grace. You say, no, that's stupidity. No, that's grace. You see, I gave her what she didn't deserve. Mercy, I withhold what she uh, should get, and grace is giving her what she don't, doesn't deserve. So notice what he says here in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Now here he's showing us that grace is not just a concept, but it is a person. He says the grace of God has appeared. Jesus Christ is a living example of God's grace. In other words, God's grace is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just talk about grace. Jesus actually demonstrated grace to people who needed grace. For example, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Everybody wanted to stone her, but Jesus extended grace to this woman. And so he says, for the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared. And here's the key in verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. You see here, the grace of God is manifested in our salvation. Now, what does he mean here by salvation? Well, salvation means to rescue. Obviously, there's physical rescue. If you're drowning in an ocean and somebody rescues you, that's a form of salvation. But the word here has a spiritual connotation. And what it's saying is that you and I are under the wrath of God. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, God didn't rescue us simply from a low self-esteem. God didn't rescue us from poverty. God didn't rescue us from our dire circumstances. Yes, that may be true, but ultimately when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about God saving us from himself, because we are all under the wrath of God from the time we reach the age of accountability. And listen, we, that's not a popular thing to talk about today because people want to be propped up all the time, and there is a place to encourage. However, we cannot expunge the wrath concept from our vocabulary as Christians because it is replete in the New Testament. In fact, there is a hymn that many of you have probably heard or sung. It's called, In Christ Alone. It's a great hymn, and here's one of the refrains in the hymn. It says, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's a true theological statement, but the Presbyterian Church, the USA branch, decided that they were going to expunge that particular refrain from that hymn because they believed it teaches child abuse. God the Father abusing his son in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Well, the Bible talks about the term propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, and that term to propitiate means to satisfy. And so no, 
This should not be expunged from any hymnal because it is a biblical concept. Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. When he died on the cross, he satisfied God's righteous demands. And look what he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, notice, to all men. Jesus didn't die just for the elect. There are some in the reformed camp, this is a a particular branch of theology that basically says, Jesus died only for those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. The Bible says Jesus died for all men. Now that doesn't mean that all men are going to be saved. This passage is not teaching universalism, which says all people in the end will be saved. No, what it's saying is Jesus made provision for all men. You see, even though God provided salvation for you and I through Jesus Christ, we still have to receive that gift of God's grace. And listen, it's received by faith. That's the nature of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor, which means you cannot earn it, you cannot deserve it. That's why good works are totally antithetical to the gospel message, because good works says, I can do something in order to earn it. God says, you can't earn it. It is strictly by grace. He offers it to us. I go to the hospital once a week in order to do evangelism. I minister to patients, as I've mentioned to you before. I go every Tuesday as a volunteer chaplain to Lexington Medical Center. And when I was there this particular Tuesday, or this past Tuesday, I ran into a man who was Indian-born. He happened to be walking, and I walked up beside him. I said, how's your day going? Good. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, where are you from? And I I knew he was from India, but I didn't know where. He said, I think New Delhi is where he said. And I said, can I ask you another question? Are you a Hindu? And he said, yes, I am. I said, can you tell me a little bit about Hinduism? And by the way, whenever you talk to somebody, ask them about their faith and let them talk because it shows that you're interested in them. Now, I've read on Hinduism and I've read on Buddhism, but I wanted to hear from him. So he began to explain and not to give you all the details, but as I was talking to him, we finally stopped in front of the gift shop because he volunteered there. I said, I'm a Christian. And I said, there's two reasons why I'm a Christ follower. And I said, these two reasons separate Christianity from every other world religion. I said, the first thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every other religious leader is still dead. Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead. And I said, secondly, you cannot earn your salvation. I said, salvation is a gift given by God, and it's received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, let me ask you a question then. He says, suppose a woman in India does all these good works, and she serves her particular deity or whatever, are you telling me that God is going to condemn that person to hell when they were good? I said, here's what I'm saying. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so you got to put the onus on Jesus. Don't put the onus on you. And so what he's saying here is God's grace, as you turn the kaleidoscope, you see God's grace and salvation. God rescued us from his wrath. And you know what that should elicit from you and I? It should elicit praise and worship and thanksgiving on a regular basis, even when we don't feel like it. Every day, we should praise God for rescuing us from his wrath. And I know that may seem insignificant now, especially when you're in this world and it's fallen. But listen, when you and I take our last breath, we're going to realize the enormity of how Jesus saved us from his wrath, and we're going to praise him for eternity. 
Well, let's turn the kaleidoscope again, and we see another component of God's grace, and that is the grace of God, not only in salvation, but sanctification. Sanctification. Notice, if you will, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And notice what it says in verse 12 here, instructing us. You see, God's grace teaches us. God's grace instructs us. God's grace disciplines us. That's the idea of the word here, instruct. And notice what God's grace does. It instructs us to deny ungodliness. You see, when you got saved, you were automatically enrolled in the school of grace. Do you realize that? It's not optional. When I was in high school, my parents one day came home and they said, son, you are going to Westminster Christian High School. I had no say in it. I didn't want to go. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I wanted to go to a big school in Miami, Florida to play football. I didn't want to go to a Christian school. My parents automatically enrolled me. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ, you were enrolled in the school of grace. And here's the issue. Are you a good student or are you a bad student? You know who the teacher is in this school of grace? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that instructs us. The Holy Spirit's the one that disciplines us. The Holy Spirit's the one that guides us. And the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us. You see, we're in this school whether we like it or not. Now you say, well, what do you mean that the the Holy Spirit or grace instructs me towards sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is basically being set apart from sin and becoming more like Jesus Christ. The moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit set you apart and is making you more like Jesus Christ. And notice what the Holy Spirit instructs us to do. What is the lesson in this school? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness simply means not to be like God. It means to be irreverent. Also, worldly desires. We understand what worldly desires are. We all struggle with them. How about the halftime show and the Super Bowl? We understand ungodliness and worldly desires. We all struggle with these particular things. And you know what the Holy Spirit instructs us to do? The Holy Spirit doesn't instruct us to indulge in ungodliness and worldly desires. And you got to know what it is that you struggle with. Listen, you got to deny it. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. You've got to make a willful decision. I've got to make a willful decision now that I'm a Christian to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's my former life. For some of you, it may be your mouth. You got to recultivate your talking. For some of you, it's your sexual habits. God delivered you out of that. For some of you, it may be alcohol, it may be drugs. For some of you, it may be a belligerent attitude. Maybe you're unsubmissive. Maybe you have this anger in your heart. We all have those areas that we struggle with. You know, when I go to Miami to visit my parents twice a year, I notice a huge difference between the culture here and the culture in Miami. Now, I grew up in South Florida. South Florida is a party city. And whenever I go back, I can feel the immorality. I can feel the materialism. I am telling you, it is palpable. 
And when I'm there and I'm visiting all the sites that I used to go to, not the evil sites, but I go down under the water where the cruise ships are, I get some lunch there. I mean, you just feel the sensuality oozing in Miami. And you know what? I can feel it. Now, obviously, that was my former life, and I say no to that because the Holy Spirit instructs me to say no to ungodliness and worldliness. You know what that means? God's grace not only saved me, but God's grace sanctifies me, and God's grace doesn't give me a license to do whatever I want to do. You say, but Mike, I mess up. I still give in to ungodliness. I still give in to worldly desires. Guess what? I do too. And you know what you have to do? You have to confess it. You have to repent of it. But here's the good news, people. God's grace always picks me up. The more I sin, the more grace that I get. Now, that's not a license to do whatever I want to do, but it does mean this. No matter how many times I blow it and I don't deny worldly desires and ungodliness, if I get back up and say, Lord, I shouldn't have thought that, I shouldn't have gone there, I shouldn't have said that, God wants me to repent and then he wants me to pursue a walk with him. And you know what? God's grace is always sufficient. The more you sin, the more grace you get. Again, that's not a license to do whatever I want to do, but notice here the positive. Not only does he want me to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, but here's the positive in verse 12. I'm to live self-controlled. What does that mean? Control your appetites. Control your thought life. You can't say, look, I can't help myself. We all want to say that. We all want to justify sin. Self-control means that I don't have that drink. Self-control means that I turn off the television when there's garbage being portrayed and a lot of stuff is coming through the radio. And then he says we're to pursue righteous. What does that mean? That refers to how we treat other people. And then godly refers to our godliness, our attitude. It refers to becoming more like God. You see, sanctification involves a twofold process. On the one hand, I have to reject and I have to willfully deny certain things in my life. And then on the positive side, I have to pursue a right relationship to God and a right relationship to other people. And listen, have you figured that it is a tug of war that goes on? It is a constant struggle in this sanctification process that I'm battling with. And listen, ultimately, whichever one you feed is going to determine what happens. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said, a revivalist preacher back in the 1700s. He said this, quote, a person's cravings will unveil their spiritual condition. That is a profound statement. You see, I'm going to struggle between worldly desires and ungodliness and pursuing a holy, righteous life. But ultimately, where are my desires? Where are my affections? Because if my affections are more into the world and sinful passions, you know what Jonathan Edwards is saying based on the scripture? It reveals your spiritual condition. You say, but wait a minute, I have struggles. If you don't have struggles, you're not walking it. There's nothing wrong with you if you've got this titanic struggle going on on the inside of you. Some days are going to be worse than others. I'm not saying every day you're going to be raging with this struggle, but listen carefully. If you're walking the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have this struggle. I have a huge dog. 
You'll notice his picture up on the screen. His name is Oreo. And the reason why, you'll notice that little white spot. There's only one speck there. And so when I got him, he was a little pup. He's a shepherd retriever mix. And I take him for a walk probably almost every day. And when I put his leash on him, he gets excited. Now, when I walk through my neighborhood, it's like I'm being pulled. Now, I have more power than him, and so I'll pull back when he starts to get aggressive. And one day, he saw another dog. And I mean, he started. He's 100 pounds. And I said, Oreo, no. And some old lady was walking by with her dog, and she said, sir, she said, who's pulling who? I said, that is a good question. So let me ask you a question. Who's pulling who in your life? You're going to struggle with this sanctification, becoming more like Christ. But the question is, who is pulling who? And so we see the grace of God, not only in salvation, but we see the grace of God in sanctification. Thirdly, as we turn the kaleidoscope, we see the grace of God in the second coming of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 13, looking. And by the way, that word means active anticipation, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. You see, the second coming of Christ is a demonstration of God's grace. You know why? Because if we don't die first, Jesus Christ is going to rescue us, and he's going to take us to be back with him. Now, the second coming of Christ involves two phases. You've probably never seen it put this way, but if you notice the diagram up on the screen, you will notice that there are two phases to the second coming of Christ. Phase number one, look at it as a bookend. Phase number one is the rapture. The church is going to be raptured up in the air, and what happens at the rapture is Jesus Christ does not touch the ground. Jesus comes in the air, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, we meet him in the air, and then we go back to heaven. And while we're in heaven, you have the seven-year tribulation period upon this earth. Then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, phase two is Jesus is going to come back with all of us, we'll be behind him, according to Revelation 19. And here, he's going to touch the earth at the Battle of Armageddon, step on the Mount of Olives. And so this is different than this, because here we meet him up in the air. And in between these two bookends, you have the seven-year tribulation period. So what's the next event on God's divine timetable? It is the what? It is the rapture. And listen, you and I need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, phase one, when he comes back for us. You know what it motivates us towards? It motivates us towards purity, and it motivates us towards service, because we know when Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to be held accountable, not for judgment, not for sin, because if you know Jesus Christ, your sins were already judged at the cross, you're not going to stand before the great white throne judgment. On the other hand, as believers, you're going to stand before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and there you're going to be evaluated for what you did in terms of your time, your treasures, your talents, and God is going to reward you commensurate with your faithfulness to him now. Notice what 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, 
we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. In other words, we don't want to be doing stuff where we're going to be ashamed if Jesus Christ was to return. How about Luke chapter 12, speaking of our service, it says this, the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, you and I are the faithful wise managers or stewards. God's given us all that he's given us. We manage it for him. And you know what he says? It's a good thing when he comes back, if you're doing what God has called you to do by serving him and using the gifts and the talents that God has given you. And so the second coming of Christ is a manifestation of the grace of God. God's grace is seen in that he will come back for his people. In fact, this statistic is pretty interesting. It says there are 7,959 verses in the New Testament total. 330 are about the second coming. This is one out of every 25 verses. The Lord referred to his return 21 times and over 50 times we are told to be ready for it. In fact, I was reading a story this week about this particular man. He lived in uh, Cheshire, England, and he wrote a letter to what we would call today the Daily Bread. All of you have heard of the Daily Bread. Back then, it was given another name. Well, he wrote this particular letter to the Daily Bread to tell the story of what had happened in his house. It was Christmas Eve, and he said his wife decided to take their twin daughters, and put them to bed early because of Christmas Eve. And they both sat by the fireplace as their two girls were in bed, and they wanted to read their Bible and just have a nice relaxing evening, when all of a sudden they heard this loud noise. It was like a trumpet sound. It was a bunch of music. And they said one of their daughters came running down the steps <clears throat> and said, Mom, Mom, is that the trump of God? They thought it was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you know what it was? It was actually the Salvation Army band outside playing Christmas hymns for all the people in the neighborhood. And they thought it was the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is coming back for you and I. It is a manifestation of God's grace. Now, I want you to notice verse 13 here as a footnote. Notice what he says. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. Now I want you to look at this, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This verse is one of the powerful verses in the New Testament that affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is not just a created being. The Bible says that Jesus is eternal with the Father. He is distinct from the Father. He is distinct from the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share the same essence, and they share the same nature with one another. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And the reason why I bring this out is because Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and all the world religions deny that Jesus Christ is God. Now, Jesus is God, but he is distinct from God the Father. So let me put it to you this way. You have God the Father, 
You have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. How many gods do we worship? One. One. Wait, you say, wait a minute. You said God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Doesn't that state that we worship three gods? No. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. See, we worship one God, and yet each member of the Trinity is God. And so what the Jehovah Witnesses do in their New World Translation is they butcher this verse, and here is what they make it to say. They make this verse to say this in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior. They add in the word are to make it seem like the Father and the Son are two distinct persons in this particular passage when the Bible says no. Jesus here is called our great God and Savior. And so this verse is one of the great verses that you can use if someone says, well, I'm not sure that Jesus is God. This passage affirms his deity. So as we turn the kaleidoscope, what have we seen? The grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in sanctification, the grace of God in the second coming. Fourthly, I would have you note the grace of God in the sacrifice of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us. That's the death of Christ. Jesus Christ gave himself for us as a substitute. He took our place. In fact, what Paul is referring to here is probably the Old Testament when the Passover took place. Do you remember the Passover lamb? Remember when they took the lamb and they killed it and they put the blood on the doorpost and the death angel would pass over? Well, that's the idea. Jesus is our substitute and Jesus delivered us from the wrath of God. And if we're covered in his blood, God will pass over as it were. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. That probably refers not to the Passover, but the Exodus. Do you remember when Israel came out of Egypt? What did God do? He redeemed Israel with a mighty outstretched arm. He took him to the Red Sea and he parted the Red Sea. You see here, he's talking about the Exodus. And then he says, he redeemed us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. In other words, this speaks of Mount Sinai. When they came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, and they ended up at Mount Sinai, and God made a covenant with them. That is called the Sinai Covenant. And so Paul here is borrowing from the Old Testament. And here is his point. Jesus Christ died for us as a substitute. He took our place. He redeemed us out of the slavery of sin in order to make us his very own possession. I was reading a story about a man who grew up in poverty. His name is Howard. This is a true story. Early on in the 1900s, he grew up in poverty, and he wanted to take himself out of poverty by becoming a doctor. And so what he did was he went door to door, knocking on all these houses, trying to sell whatever he was selling. Well, one day, he only had a dime to himself, and he was very, very hungry. And so he knocked on a door, and he had decided that he was going to ask whoever answered the door for a meal, because he didn't have any money. 
And so he lost the nerve to ask this particular woman who came to the door for a meal. Instead, he asked her for a glass of water. Well, she invited him in, and she gave him a glass of milk. And they talked for a while, and then he left. Well, he went through medical school, worked his way out of poverty, and became a very well-known doctor. And one day, he was going by this room because this particular woman had a rare disease, and when he walked in the room, he noticed it was the lady that he had met many years prior at that door who gave him a glass of milk. She did not recognize him, but he recognized her. And so he did everything he could to help her overcome this rare disease. And in the end, she finally did overcome it. And then he instructed the business office. He said, I want you to take all of her medical bills and I want you to give them to me because I'm going to take care of them. And then he said this, put one bill with the total amount that she owes and I want you to mail it to her. And so they did that. And they mailed it to her. She was nervous because you know how medical prices are today. Imagine, you know, this is high back then. Well, she takes the letter or the bill and she opens it up thinking, man, I'm going to be slammed. I'm going to be in debt the rest of my life. And when she looked at the amount on the bottom, he had written this, paid in full with one glass of milk. Isn't that great? You see, Jesus paid your sin debt and my sin debt in full when he died on the cross. One glass of milk. Jesus died as our substitute, and you know what he did? He redeemed us out of the slave market of sin because we were all slaves to sin prior to salvation. And what Jesus did is he came along and paid the redemption price with his own blood, and he purchased us out of slavery so that we would become his very own possession. You know what that means? God loves you. He loves me. We belong to God. We are his possession. You know what that makes you? Valuable. And that simply means this, you and I can walk in God confidence knowing that we are the possession of God and that God has a purpose for me, he has a plan for me, and that God will fulfill his purposes through me if I'm willing to surrender to him and not go back into the former life of slavery. Because he paid the price. You know, back in uh, the 1800s, Abraham Lincoln in 1863, January 1st, he made his famous Emancipation Proclamation. He basically wrote this letter, it's pretty long, and he basically declared in one act 3.5 million slaves that were a part of the Confederate state, their status changed just like that. They went from being slaves to being free when he made that Emancipation Proclamation. Not all of them, but the ones in the Confederate state. Do you realize that some of them didn't get the message right away? And here's the problem. Even though he had made that Emancipation Proclamation that all the slaves were free, some of them never were free. Look what happened. 45 years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation freeing American slaves, Green Cottenham and more than a thousand other black men toiled under the lash of slope number 12. You know what slope number 12 was? It was a coal mine. And under the whip, many men suffered, even though it had been declared that they were free. They had been given the Emancipation Proclamation, but you know what? Even though that was their status, even though they had been set free, 
they never walked in that freedom. Why? Because of the abuse that was going on during that time. And you know what the Bible says? God has set you free. God has given us the emancipation proclamation. You know what that proclamation is? Jesus died for you. He purchased your redemption. He paid the price. He has set you free. But you know what happens? A lot of Christians aren't walking in freedom. A lot of Christians go back to the vomit, they go back to the slave market, and they don't realize that the Emancipation Proclamation has already been made. Well, there's one final way that God demonstrates His grace to us as we turn the kaleidoscope, and that is this, the grace of God in service to Christ. The grace of God in our service to Christ. I love this. Notice, if you will, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I want you to circle this. Zealous, enthusiastic. Oh, you mean I got to go serve in the nursery? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm so tired of Calvary Chapel, they're always looking for volunteers. I just don't have time. Ah, it's such a drudgery. Is that what the word says? The word says, enthusiastic for what? Good deeds. Listen, when I got saved and I committed my life to Christ, you didn't have to, you didn't have to, you didn't have to cajole me to serve God. You didn't have to threaten me. You didn't have to bribe me. I wanted to do it. Because when you understand God's grace and salvation, when you fully understand what Christ has done for you, you know what that does? It gives you an internal motivation to want to serve him. I want to serve my Savior who died for me. I want to serve my Savior who loved me. And listen, when you and I serve God in different ways, and we zealously are involved, you know what we're doing? We're putting the grace of God on display. Because think about this, with all the different ministries, with all the different gifts, with all the different personalities, as the church serves Jesus Christ, you know what we're putting on display? The multifacetedness of God's grace. People are seeing God's grace when we reach out to people who are hurting. People are seeing God's grace when we teach children. People are seeing God's grace when we go into prisons and we do a softball ministry. Whatever it is, Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel, you will not lose your reward if you give a cup of cold water in his name. See, God sees what you do. And listen, if you've been saved, you've been recruited. God didn't save you to not serve him. God foreordained before the foundation of the world that you and I would serve him. There was a study done among 4,500 American adults, and here's what it said. Listen to this. People who volunteered an average of more than 100 hours each year, 68% of them felt physically healthier. 73% lowered stress levels. 89% improved overall well-being. Now listen, that's not the primary reason why we serve Jesus. Not for the benefits for me. But this is a byproduct. And so here's my encouragement to you. Show you are appreciative of God's grace by getting involved. 
It doesn't have to be Sunday morning in the building. It could be during the week. But listen, God wants everybody to get involved in some capacity to serve him. Now, as we close, we have one example of someone who is zealous for good deeds, and it's a great ministry. Come up, Angie. Angie's going to share something that God has birthed in her life and in John's life as a result of them being able to adopt a child. You're going to see his picture here. He's cute as a button. Picture. There he is. Look at that guy. So this is our John Joseph, our miracle, an example of God's grace and mercy and fervent prayer. He's six months old now. We adopted him from birth. The Lord loved me enough and showed me enough grace to be able to be a part of the entire process and to be even in the room when he was uh, birthed. Uh, his, mother, his birth mother, she, uh, she was a woman in crisis, a woman that didn't know she had any other options um, due to some life uh, choices, but not all. She lost her family at a young age, and she didn't have any family. So she went to uh, Planned Parenthood in Columbia and uh, was told that was her only option, her best option. And um, fortunately, the cutoff period at that time was 12 weeks. And when she went in and had her ultrasound, she was 13 weeks. So they could not perform the abortion. Well, she was still desperate, and she heard that North Carolina would do it up until 18 weeks. So she took her $800, which is what it cost to abort a 13-month-old then, a 13-week-old, and she went to North Carolina. And when she got there... They said to her, well, South Carolina was way off. I don't know why, but you were six or 17 weeks and so many days. So we can't, we can do it, but it's going to cost another $1,000. Praise the Lord. She didn't have that $1,000. And praise the Lord for his sovereignty. And I am so grateful for that. And every minute I see him, I see the Lord's sovereignty. But I also see where our world has come to and the lies that we're believing and that we're telling people. And the Lord has just put it on my heart. I mean, from a very young age, I was called to adopt before I knew I couldn't have children. In fact, when I met my husband and we were dating, I said, you know, after we have our own children, we're going to adopt. And he was like, that's great. But now I feel like for such a moment, for such a time as this, is why God placed that in my heart. And I want to help women in crisis. I want to help people know the truth. And part of why I'm up here today is, you know, I want y'all to know these women, they don't hate life. They don't, they don't love death. They're scared. They don't, most of them don't have other options that they know of because they weren't taught Christ in a loving home. So that's where I want to join with Christ and other women. And, and there's some opportunities for men, too, I'll talk about in a second, to teach these women and to sh- show these women the truth. Um, the Lord's been working on this for years in my heart. It was a spark. But after I learned last week that just for another $1,000, he wouldn't exist. The fire is burning in a good way to help others. I've been praying, okay, Lord, if you want me to do something, you need to show me how, what to do, where. I don't want to take on any more than I can handle. And just a few short weeks after those prayers, Henry and Ellen came up to me. They attend this church and said, we got a banquet we want you to go to, you and John. So we went, and it was called A Moment of Hope. And it's an organization 
they don't just talk women out of abortion. They walk alongside them. Um, and there's a couple opportunities there to serve. They go out to the gates of the um, Planned Parenthood, and they pray with these women that allow them. They talk to them about their other options. They take them to see, if they want to, the, the baby, which is something the abortion clinic don't do. They do it, but they don't let them see it. Um, so they're there to encourage these women and let them know there's other options. So there's, there's opportunity there. And this is working because they went from 12 care teams, which is what I want to talk about next, to needing more because there's so many women changing their mind. Praise the Lord. And they, um, at first, they started this three years ago. They were, the abortion clinic was open five days a week. Well, because it's working, it's four days a week. And these guys are out there every day that they're open talking to these women. And they need more. Now they've got three gates instead of two. So they need more people out there on the front end, men, women. That, and they train you to do this for free. They tell you what to say, what not to say. And then brings us to the care team, which is what I want to be a part of. I want to find some women that will come alongside of me and that will show these ladies that have changed their mind that there is a God and that we support them. And we'll throw them a baby shower and we'll get them to their doctor's appointments and we'll walk with them. So I pray that you consider it. And if the Lord's laid it on your heart, I'll be at the back for service, after service to get your name. Amen. Thank you. That's God's grace, right? Manifested all different ways we express the grace of God in our service. And so, as we've looked at the kaleidoscope this morning of God's grace, as we've turned it, we've seen combinations. First of all, the grace of God in salvation. Secondly, the grace of God in sanctification. Thirdly, the grace of God in the second coming. Fourthly, the grace of God in the sacrifice of Christ. And finally, the grace of God in service when we serve other people. Well, We'll close with verse 15. He ends the chapter 2 by saying this to Titus. These things, all that he said in chapters 1 and 2, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Titus, I want you to teach this. I want you to exhort people to obey it. And those who don't, as a lifestyle, you have to lovingly reprove them. And he says, do it with all authority. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the preacher's authority? not the preacher. It's the Word of God. And so that is the basis of our authority. And then he says this, Titus, let no one disregard you. Here's what the Greek says, let no one talk circles around you. In other words, people are going to, they're not going to want to submit to the Word of God. Well, they come up with all kinds of excuses and none of us are perfect. We're talking about lifestyle here, not perfection, but direction. He says, Titus, if people are going to argue with you, you need to tell them the authority is based on God's word. And he says, don't let anybody talk circles around you. So let's be a manifestation of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the kaleidoscope of your grace. Many different shapes, sizes, colors. Father, we didn't even talk about your grace and suffering as you said to Paul when he had that thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Father, thank you for your grace even when we go through suffering. We bless you. We praise you. And I pray, Father, that all of us would give thanks to your grace and our salvation. Father, thank you for saving us this morning, delivering us 
from your wrath. Father, thank you for your grace in sanctifying us, instructing us, teaching us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Thank you, Father, for your grace in coming back for us, for dying for us, and Lord, for the grace of being able to serve other people out of gratitude for what you've done for us. Lord, strengthen us here at Calvary Chapel. May we be manifestations of your grace. And Father, most importantly, may we show grace to other people as you have shown it to us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.